break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 18th of November, 2021. Very happy to be back with you here on the show, as we always are. And we've got plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about a U.S.-Saudi arms deal under fire in Congress. We're going to be talking about a massacre of protesters in Sudan. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we want to start with the Secretary of State Antony Blinken's trip to Kenya yesterday. We believe in the potential of Ethiopia to find a resolution to this crisis. We believe that a ceasefire is possible. Uh, We believe that the other conditions uh, regarding um, humanitarian access are possible. We must believe in the fortitude and the wisdom of the Ethiopian people because in the end, these solutions will come from them. Those were the words of Rachel Omamo, Cabinet Secretary for Foreign Affairs for the government of Kenya, speaking alongside U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken at a press conference in Nairobi yesterday. Blinken, who was on a tour of Africa, stopped first in Nairobi, seemingly to highlight the importance not just of Kenya as an ally, but the importance of East African issues, or at least to give the appearance that the Biden administration places East African issues high on the pedestal of foreign affairs concerns. But as what we heard from Ms. Omamo implies, it seems that Mr. Blinken found that the U.S. is more isolated on a number of key issues, in particular, the issue of Ethiopia, on the African continent. Blinken's trip comes at what feels like an inflection point in the conflict. The boastful claims by the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front that they were on the verge of taking the capital of Addis Ababa have faded into the ether. And even in their own propaganda, they have begun to emphasize the so-called, quote-unquote, blockade of Tigray. That the TPLF would switch from such, quote-unquote, offensive to, quote-unquote, defensive language so quickly clearly lends credence to the idea that their offensive aimed at Addis has, at the very least, stalled and quite possibly turned into a retreat, as some reports from the battlefront have intimated. And further, reports have been coming in from the Afar region of the country, one of the areas neighboring Tigray that the TPLF invaded after the government declared a ceasefire, that a TPLF offensive there was blunted and perhaps even routed. Further, the narrative around a quote-unquote de facto humanitarian blockade by the government of Ethiopia of the region of Tigray is a narrative that continues to fray around the edges. The most recent UN map of humanitarian relief activities has clearly reflected that the hardest-to-reach areas are in Afar and Amhara around the edges of the TPLF offensive, and that the offensive has caused significant displacement in Amhara, especially while the UN maintains its critiques of all sides in its official reporting. Reading that same reporting, it's quite clear that the TPLF offensive has been the key exacerbating factor in terms of humanitarian challenges in northern Ethiopia. 
And all of this comes just a couple weeks after Amnesty International released a report slamming the TPLF for human rights abuses. The comments from Kenya, which follow a weekend visit by President Uhuru Kenyatta to Ethiopia, while measured, are also quite telling. The fact that they noted that solutions ultimately will come from the Ethiopian people is very interesting because that's language very similar to what the Ethiopian government has used since the beginning of the conflict in terms of how it will be resolved. Kenya, at the United Nations, has also been one of the main forces pushing the AU, African Union, mediation process as the lead and really only process, but certainly the lead process. So combining these two things, Kenya seems to clearly be messaging that they won't support any so-called peace process led by the U.S. or any non-AU force, which for the TPLF is bad news because they have rejected the AU process and their own, the TPLF that is, stated negotiating position requires the government of Abiy Ahmed to step down, something that the AU process does not accept. The U.S. had previously, when announcing that they would be willing to heavily sanction Ethiopia, intimated that the AU process could be usurped, but clearly even their allies on the continent are not on board with that. Even more, Blinken was forced in the Q&A, even though he really tried to dance around it, to declare that Abiy Ahmed is the quote-unquote duly elected leader of Ethiopia. It's also a blow to the TPLF that claims the recent election and current government are totally illegitimate. All told then, it seems Blinken and the U.S. have been forced to essentially acquiesce to the idea that there can be no peace process based on regime change, which is what the TPLF wants. Now, all that being said, the U.S. has still been doing what it can to buttress the TPLF. Both Blinken and State Department spokesperson Ned Price kept repeating that all Americans should leave Ethiopia immediately, despite the fact that outside the immediate war zone, which, by the way, is about, well, it's at least hundreds of kilometers away from the capital of Addis Ababa, but despite the fact that outside this immediate war zone, there really appears to be no danger to U.S. citizens in the country. But it's clearly part of a broader psychological effort to make it seem like the TPLF offensive is much more robust than it actually is. Interestingly enough, this also became an issue in Kenya, as President Uhuru Kenyatta, clearly on purpose, took the international media to task for buttressing misleading information coming out of various conflict spots and non-conflict areas in Africa. Here is a bit of what he had to say. Sometimes, you know, you watch news, which I've stopped watching, because, <laughs> and you find... Al Jazeera, CNN, Sky, BBC, whichever one you flip to. So they're talking about something that has happened in Rwanda, in South Sudan, in Ethiopia, in Somalia. My friends, sometimes even as far away as Nigeria on the other side of the continent. And then when the guy is signing off, this is... John White reporting from Nairobi, Kenya. <laughs> and again, that was Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta. Even further, the U.S. keeps muddying the waters around the issue of a ceasefire. They are demanding an immediate ceasefire without conditions, which actually means freezing the front lines in place, meaning allowing a large part of the TPLF lamb grab in Amhara and Afar to become the status quo. They also are calling for a free flow of aid after that ceasefire, which, when you put it together, means stabilizing the TPLF in a massive amount of territory. This goes directly against the negotiating position of the government, which calls on the TPLF to retreat from the invaded territory back into Tigray proper. So the U.S. position is 
still to give the TPLF the strongest possible hand. And the recent sanctions on Eritrea clearly reflect the U.S. is trying to do everything possible to create military advantage for the TPLF. So while clearly the U.S. policy has become a bit schizophrenic, as their friends in the TPLF are failing in their regime change attempts, clearly the U.S. still wants the TPLF to be able to come out with a major role in the country and to weaken, if not dethrone, the Abiy Ahmed government and hobble the shift towards a new Horn of Africa dispensation that doesn't take the same subservient posture to imperial power as the TPLF did for its 30-year reign from 1991 to 2018. And finally, it seems clear that the policy of all countries towards this issue is being affected by the rally around the flag effect going on in Ethiopia right now, with huge mass rallies all across the country about a week ago, which have been followed up on by large fundraising meetings also happening across the country and, by the way, across the world in the diaspora to support the war effort and large groups of people still signing up to fight as well as a much larger outcry against U.S. intervention and the TPLF offensive happening in cities around the world where protests have also been happening. Still a little too early to predict the exact end game here, but what does seem clear is that the TPLF attempt to violently overthrow the Ethiopian government to restore themselves to power after being displaced by the masses of Ethiopians is very much on the ropes, and that the U.S. hopes to undermine a more independent, more united Horn of Africa is staggering around the ring, looking like it might not be able to make it another round. Those were the sounds of huge mass protests in the Sudanese capital of Khartoum yesterday before the military coup regime in Sudan shot dead 15 protesters all across the country in an attempt to suppress tens of thousands of people who had surged into the streets to protest the late October coup in a range of Sudanese cities. Protests, however, have not stopped. And even as we report to you here, there are ongoing protests, clashes and strikes going on. And those clashes, by the way, are between protesters and military and police forces in Sudan. And obviously, the resistance to the coup is escalating. Over 80 were wounded in the protests, which followed last Saturday's large protest around the country denouncing the coup, the second March of Millions, as they're called. Wednesday's protests seem, first impression-wise at least, to actually have been larger than the protest on Saturday, which is deeply notable. The coup government turned the screws after the weekend demonstrations, arresting many protesters and protest leaders, storming hospitals to prevent vigils, and blocking the internet and phone services around the country to make it difficult for people to organize. But despite all that, the movement continued. Faisal Al-Bagher, general coordinator of the Journalist Association for Human Rights, told Sudanese media outlet Radio Dubanga that Khartoum has been turned into a quote-unquote military barracks since Wednesday morning, and what his organization stresses is a part of trying to not just repress the protest movement, but hopefully black out their brutal crackdown in the world media. The movement is now calling for an all-out general strike, road blockades, and more to create what they would they call total paralysis in the country and bring down the coup government. They are also calling for a totally new government, drawn only from the organizations that are participating in resistance to the coup and with a clear role for organizations at the neighborhood, professional and trade union level in whatever new governmental setup is to emerge. Overall, it seems like the old phrase, oppression breeds resistance, is as true as ever. The first arms deal between the Biden administration and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia is under fire in both houses of Congress. 
And the House of Representatives Ilhan Omar of Minnesota has filed a bill against the deal and Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky with the support of Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont is saying he will try to force a floor vote on the issue to put people on the record as it concerns the $650 million missile deal. The deal is to sell 280 Raytheon-built advanced medium-range air-to-air missiles and 596 missile launchers. Outrage over the deal is centered on a range of things, but essentially the fact that Saudi Arabia remains the aggressor in Yemen, having launched and continued a war that is widely referred to as the world's worst humanitarian disaster. The Saudis have been scored for targeting schools, hospitals, and farmland in deliberate efforts to worsen humanitarian suffering. The State Department, interestingly enough, basically confirmed those allegations in their defense of the weapons sales by noting that no one should be concerned because the weapons were, quote, not used to strike ground targets, end quote. But why should anyone be concerned with that if, as the Saudis say, they are not wantonly bombing civilians? Well, you know why, because they are wantonly bombing civilian targets. The State Department defense of the sale also shows what a sham the U.S. declaration that they were ceasing to back, quote unquote, offensive actions in the war in Yemen on the part of Saudi Arabia and others. As they note, the missiles and by they, I mean the State Department, the missiles will be primarily used to shoot down missiles fired by the Houthis. But to portray that as, quote unquote, defensive is ridiculous. Saudi Arabia started the war, has continued the war and deepened it at great humanitarian cost to the people of Yemen. And they have refused all serious negotiations. They are one of the world's richest nations with almost unlimited resources, and the Houthis' missile-launching prowess has been the main counterweight they've been able to deploy. So in other words, being better able to counter Houthi missiles means Saudi Arabia is better able to continue the war and less likely to feel the need to find a resolution, which means the world's worst humanitarian crisis will only get even worse than that. While it's widely expected the sale will go through despite opposition in Congress, two things are clear. One is that there now is at least some vocal opposition to the U.S. lockstep support for Saudi Arabia, and two, that the Biden administration cares more about propping up its reactionary allies than the human rights and democracy it keeps preaching about. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. 